0: Do it right now, we pray. Light a fire in us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kids, you are now dismissed to Kingdom Kids. Have a great time back there today with Miss Cindy. Yep. Yep, you go through that door over there. The rest of you can grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. And turn to Psalm chapter 2 psalm chapter 2 we're taking a small little break uh, this morning from our study in deuteronomy um, and a short pause uh, where we have been discovering there as we have been reading through the book of deuteronomy that you are what you are god's treasure that was the initial a message that God wanted His covenant community to receive as they were going into, getting ready to go into the promised land. He wanted them to know without a shadow of a doubt that they were God's treasured possession. Whether they were doing good or whether they were doing poorly, He wanted them to know that. Okay, That's a very powerful message for us today as well that you are God's very uh, treasured possession. But if you've been here any length of time, for the past year outside of holidays and our little excursus into the Gospel of John at the beginning of uh, of this year, 2022, uh, we've taken one Sunday a month, typically the last Sunday of each month, uh, to look at a psalm. Um, kind of like a survey, gleaning some of the wisdom and some of the hope uh, from a smattering of different examples. So we've looked at Psalm 1, uh, we've looked at Psalm uh, 46, I think, Psalm 51, Psalm 103 or 110. I can't remember all of them, but we've, we've surveyed several of these psalms. Now, one of the main reasons that we've done this is this. Maybe you were aware of it. Maybe, maybe I it sort of explained it uh, uh, on those Sundays when we did look at it. But it's actually to teach us how to pray. Looking at the Psalms is actually a lesson in how to pray. Do you understand that the Psalms in the Old Testament, their function was, to? it was a prayer book Uh, being used by the ancient community of Israel. Now, for a lot of us, that sounds strange, doesn't it? A prayer book, what? Because most of us come from faith traditions that are more contemporary. We're more extemporaneous meaning that our prayers are oftentimes very extemporaneous expressions of whatever is going on in our heart. But there are many other traditions, say, for example, the Catholic and Anglican and Lutheran traditions. Prayer books are very commonplace. That should have evoked, or I had hoped it would have evoked a small chuckle because the book of common prayer... <laughs> These prayer books are commonplace. Never mind. Okay, that was for me. Yeah, 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 that was, yeah, sorry. But they were part of the normative vernacular of church life and practice. And so the Psalms served that function in the Old Testament. They helped the people of God learn how to pray and they gave uh, the ancient nation of Israel... The, uh, the content to pray for. They, not only how to pray, but what to pray for. And in the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, uh, we see David, who is the great Old Testament king. He's actually teaching his fellow Israelites how to pray for the king. And all subsequent kings who would follow on David's throne, ultimately culminating uh, in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The messianic king, the anointed king, the one king who would make everything that is right, everything that is wrong, everything that is broken, and everything that is sad in this sin-stained world. Someone that we should look to and pray for in our own day and age. Because we need that king to show up. And so let's see what David... How David helps us to pray for this king in Psalm 2. Uh, And uh, what does he have to teach us? And so this is God's word. Psalm 2 beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father we thank you for this word. Given so long ago. Through the pen of King David. David probably didn't even realize, maybe he did, there would be one, one day who would come from his own loins who would fulfill these words. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as we bring all of our broken selves to this place where we look at your word, that you would be kind enough to teach us that you would be kind enough, O Lord, to show us the things that we need to learn, that our hearts would be receptive to the things that you have to say to us. And Father, that you would indeed enable us to take refuge in the Son that you've given. Father, we need you. You are an unstoppable God. You are bringing an unstoppable kingdom. Help us not to get in the way of that. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that I think sticks out Very obviously in this passage, and maybe you uh, saw it too, maybe you recognized it as we were reading through the passage, is this? It is the unstoppable nature of this chosen king's rule. Did you catch that? Who's going to stand against the Lord and against his anointed? No one. That's who God in heaven does what? He laughs. He scoffs at, he mocks those who would dare stand opposed to him. This is an unstoppable kingdom. It's almost uh, very similar to when, uh, when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. And, uh, and uh, Jesus asks his disciples, He says, Who do you say that I am? And then they, how did the disciples respond? Do you remember? They say, well, some people say that you are the prophet, that you're Elijah, come in the flesh, right? And then very pointedly, Jesus then says, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I don't want you to tell me what other people think about me. I want you to tell me what you think about me. And then it's Simon Peter who steps up like the robust human being that he is the one who would run through walls and says you are the Christ you are the son of the living God and what is Jesus's response to Peter in that moment flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you Peter flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you my God in heaven revealed this to you and it's upon this rock it is upon this confession that I will build my church and then what does he go on to say and the gates of hell Hell will not prevail against... Not hail H-I-A... H-A-I-L. But hell, H-E-L-L. I'm from North Carolina. I don't know how to talk. I'm learning. It's taken me a long time. That's why I moved to Florida so many years ago. I can learn how to talk down here. But the gates of hell is not going to prevail against God and His kingdom. Once you get past that fact, everything else is great. But if you do not submit... To that then these words become absolutely terrifying don't they what is the response to those to the rulers to the nations who stand opposed to God God's ridicule God's scorn God's mockery how dare you how many of us want that i don't and yet that's one of the obvious things that there's the unstoppable nature of this chosen king's rule and if that's what this psalm is about then how do we pray for how do we hope for this royal messianic king david this royal messianic king. And so David gives us and tells us three things. Number one, and I've already alluded to this, there is a, uh, here are the three lessons. There is a vanity to opposing him. There's a vanity to opposing him. Number two, there's the decrees of God's promise to him, this messianic king. And finally, there is the hope of his eternal rule. So let's start with, listen, I want to make one quick little disclaimer. This, this, passage psalm 2 is one of the most frequently quoted or alluded to psalms in all of the new Testament. It is foundational. If you want to understand Jesus and his role and his purposes, guess what? It is mentioned in Matthew's gospel at Jesus' baptism, which we're actually going to talk about very briefly. It is mentioned in Acts of the Apostles. The nations conspired when, uh, when, they talk, when they're talking about how Jesus was crucified. It was the nations. It was all of the people conspiring against him. But Jesus won, even against all of their uh, conspiracy to take him down. It's alluded to in Paul's, uh, uh, Paul's letters and, and even in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And so, but listen, we've only got 30 minutes. I've only got 30 minutes, so I can't cover all of those things. So I got to cover just a couple. So I hope that you'll grant me that. Let's start first with this, this whole idea, this vanity of opposing him. Look at how this psalm begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. From the very outset, the psalmist makes it clear that the nation's attempt is what? It is to literally rule themselves apart from God. In other words, I want to be my own master. Do you understand that from the time of Adam and Eve, guess what Adam and Eve's sin was in the Garden of Eden when God said to them, listen, you can have every, every tree, you can have the fruit of every tree in the garden except for one. And that's the, the fruit that's in the middle of the garden. Because in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. But what did they say when the, the Satan offered them the forbidden fruit? What did they say? Essentially, I'd rather make my own decisions, but thank you. I'd rather rule my own life. Do you understand that that is the sin of beneath every other sin? I want to be my own master. I want to call the shots of my own life. No one else gets to do that. Do you understand that? And so from the very outset, uh, that is uh, the, the nation's attempt is literally to rule oneself apart from God, independent of His authority, independent of His laws. And so what it's saying here is that nothing, uh, all of this is nothing more than a fool's errand. It's empty, it's vain, it's an exercise in futility. That's what the psalmist is telling us. And, at, and this rebellion is not just generic rebellion, But rather, it's very specific, isn't it? Who is the rebellion against? It's against the Lord and against His anointed. So let's unpack this a little bit further. I want you to remember the context. This is probably, and most scholars agree, this is probably a Psalm of David. He himself had been anointed by whom? To become the king of Israel. Who anointed uh, uh, David? Samuel, that's right. His namesake, right over there. Samuel. Uh, He, to be the the next king of Israel because Saul was an absolute failure. And so God was making a, a, and then later on, God made a pretty incredible promise to David when he became king. I want you to hold your finger there in the Psalms and flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I don't have this on the screen today. Second Samuel chapter 7, and I want you to listen to verses 14 uh, through 16. Listen to this. This is God's promise to David. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you hear the promise? David. Even though you may fall away, even though you uh, you and your sons may, uh, may make a mockery of my laws, guess what? My promise is always going to be for you. There will never be a time when one of your sons will not sit on my throne and rule. God was promising that one of David's sons would forever sit on the throne. And so David, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, he penned this psalm for each and every one of his succeeding sons who would sit on the throne and become king, so much so that this was, became like a coronation prayer of sorts. And so believing in God's promises to David to have uh, his kingdom reign forever, then it was a prayer that the nations, the Gentiles that their plots and their schemes to take down God's kingdom and His anointed would all fail. That was the prayer. It would be similar to how Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now let's unpack this a little bit further for us. In the ancient Near East there were lords, they were called suzerains, they were like the big kings, they were regional kings, okay? And they had up under them, they had these lesser lords. They were called vassals or servants. And so the poet here in this passage in hyperbolic language here, he portrays uh, uh, the kings of the earth as doing what? As breaking away from their required allegiance to the king of kings. That's the, the, the picture that we're supposed to get. The language of bonds and cords here refers to the manner of the yoke of a cart or plow that was placed on the necks of animals. And thus the yoke of God's kingdom is not merely rejected. It's not merely, hey, I don't want you to, uh, to rule me. I don't want you to, uh, to be my lord, but rather cast off, thrown off. In other words, humanity's response to God is, how dare you say that you can rule me? That's vastly different, isn't it? I want you to think about that in just in terms of where we live, the context and the, uh, where we live today. We live in a society, do we not, that simply does not want to acknowledge God's rule. As a matter of fact, they might even go so far as to say, how dare you? How dare you? Tell me. You see, the kingdoms of this earth are by nature opposed to the rule of God and His Messiah. And so listen to this. If you are a Christian and you attempt to live faithfully out your Christian convictions, then you are going to, by definition, experience misunderstanding by the world. That's at the very least. Or you're going to experience downright persecution and hatred by the world at worst. Or somewhere in between. And why? It's because the world's system of thinking are, as the psalmist tells us, opposed to the rule of God and to His anointed. Now what does that also mean? It also means that not one of us in here, and you've got to hear this, not one of us in here is neutral. Not one of us in here is neutral. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3, 23. It doesn't say some. It says all have sinned. All of us have at one time in our lives been an enemy to God. All of us have been in opposition to Him. All of us have been in rebellion to His rule and to His authority in our lives. How? By the things that we do, the things that we fail to do, even the good things that we do, guess what? They're still still sin-stained. In other words, each and every one of us lives in active rebellion against God. And what does the psalmist say about those who live in rebellion toward God? It's vanity. What you're doing is vain. And then what is God's response to those who live in such rebellion to His rule? Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He, God, laughs. Do you see how in this section the scene, the scene shifts from earth where the nations are conspiring together against God and His anointed to the heavens where God is uh, enthroned? And it's there, from there, that He's laughing. He's literally mocking the feeble attempts of the rulers. His laughter is an expression of ridicule because He knows their end for the wages of sin is death. Listen to this. From the from another psalm of, of King David, Psalm 37 verse 13, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day that is those who oppose him, he sees the wicked's day coming. Romans chapter 6:23, for the wages of sin or rebellion or death. This is what the Bible says about all rebellion to his rule. You simply can't survive it. You won't. That's scary. Do you understand that the only way that this is... This ought to be very scary to all of us. You can't have the good news, honestly, without first having the bad news. And there's the bad news. You and I simply cannot escape in our own strength, in our own terms, our own uh, rebellion against God. We simply can't. If left to our own devices, we would keep running as far in the opposite direction. Just like Jonah, when he was called by God to go to Nineveh, guess what? He went in the exact opposite direction towards Tarshish. We would do exactly the same thing. That's our natural propensity. But in steps the good news of the gospel, the story of the gospel. And how is this good news? Here it is. Jesus is the one who is ultimately humiliated for us. He is the one who is spat upon. He is the one who is mocked. He is the one who knew no sin was made to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was the nations that conspired to do this, to humiliate him. For what purpose? So that God would not mock and ridicule and laugh at you, but rather set his smile and his laughter of joy upon you. Do you know what the Bible says happens every time a person comes out of darkness and comes to faith, uh, comes to Jesus by faith and receives him as Lord and Savior? Do you know what the Bible says? Every time it says that there is rejoicing, there is celebrating in heaven. In other words, there's a party. What happens at parties? Last night, I went over to the Smith's house. My wife and I and and Luke went over to the Smith's house for dinner. Thank you very much for the extraordinary meal. I still can't get over that chocolate eclair clake. It, It was amazing. All the weight that I lost is now back on, so thanks so much for that. No, but there was laughter. Because that's what you do at parties you laugh, you enjoy one another. Because God in His infinite kindness has chosen no longer to look at you and to look at me as if we are enemies because because of Jesus. Because of because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we're no longer enemies, we're friends. Though you were once far off as a writer of Hebrews, excuse me, the writer uh, Paul in Ephesians tells us, even though we were foreigners and strangers in this world, we have now been brought into the, the kingdom of the Son that He loves. We've been brought near through the blood of Jesus. And there's a party. They're celebrating in heaven. So whatever laughter is, there is, is not that of derision, but it's laughter of joy because a sinner has come home. And so we pray that people will respond to the vanity of, a spo- of opposing God's rule and His Messiah, that they'll come to, s- to their senses and turn to God in faith and trust. That is, the, that is what we, we pray for. So what we pray for as a church. Okay? The second thing is the decrees of God's promise. These next two points won't take nearly as long as the first one. So what else do we pray for? Well, we pray for God's decrees for His anointed. Look at verses 7 through 9. What does it say here? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so what do we have here? Well, first we have this public proclamation, don't we? What is the proclamation? You are my son. Today you're my son. You have been, and I have become your father. The Lord decrees his own relationship to this king. I am your father and you're my son. And so at the moment of coronation, David became, in a sense, God's son. And at each successive coronation, each subsequent king also became God's son, thus fulfilling God's promise in Second Samuel chapter 7. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Does that language sound vaguely familiar in all of your years of reading the Bible? Does any of that language sound vaguely familiar? Does it remind you of a time maybe when Jesus was uh, baptized? I hope it does because it was supposed to. Because when Jesus was baptized, when he came to John to be baptized, what happened? At the end of his baptism, after, after John had sprinkled him with water. For those of you Baptists in here, that was for you. Sprinkled him with water. What did he do? What happened? Do you remember? Matthew chapter 3 verse 17. Behold a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It came from heaven. Here's my Son. I want to stop here for a, mo- a moment. And I want to tell you some extraordinarily awesome news about this particular passage, one that has ministered to my heart over the years. Do you understand that when God the Father speaks that to God the Son, Jesus, He also says that to everyone who is in Jesus? Did you hear me? Many of us, I was talking to some friends this morning. Many of us don't feel at times, especially if we look at our record, we look at how if we have a good week or if we have a bad week, if we don't sin too much, if we sin a lot, we think, well, how in the world could God ever really love me, right? And so we sort of doubt our salvation. We we lose assurance. We think to ourselves, how in the world God can't love someone... Listen to me, hear me, dear friends, this very moment. Being in Christ has nothing to do with how well you perform even after your salvation. It is only and will ever be the work of Jesus for you. You go more into the gospel, not into performance-based religion. Do you understand that? Today, you are my son, God says to you. And in you, I am well pleased. My heart is bursting with love for you. I'm so pleased with you. But here's the thing. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God and how gracious and kind and loving He is. He chose you in Him before the foundations of the earth is what the Bible tells us. There's never been a time that he was not has not loved you. There will never be a time when he will cease to love you, guys. That's so good news. I need that. I need that when I sin, because I need a savior that says, "I love you. I know you've messed up. It's not a shock. It's not a surprise. You're broken. Live in it. You're not an orphan." Your adopted son. Live in it. So those are just some of the implications. You see, God in this passage was publicly proclaiming to uh, or in, in Matthew chapter seven, uh, three, 3 verse 17 ma- uh, God was publicly proclaiming to John the Baptist he was publicly uh, proclaiming to everyone present at Jesus' baptism here is the Messiah here is the great Davidic king promised in Psalm 2 he is my son and he is the long awaited king the king has come and what is the prayer then? what is the request? The request is make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, extend your rule. Extend your rule. Friends, this is the hope of the saints, it is the hope of the church. I want you to hold your finger once again in Psalm 2 and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Listen to these words. This is the hope of the church. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. What does it say here? Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he he has a name written. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul even tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that great early church hymn about Christ's humility. He says there that everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now, I don't know how much wider Jesus' rule could be than in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. How much wider, how much more extensive could it possibly be than those three places? And so the prayer is that every knee would bow to Jesus and every knee would acknowledge His Lordship. So what do you think then is the purpose of the church? And we really are bringing this thing to a close. What do you think is the purpose of the church? I'm going to tell you one thing. The church does not exist to entertain people. I'm not here to try to make you guys feel good. And As a matter of fact, our church isn't here to try to put forward this amazing performance, you know, so that you guys are wowed. Look at them. Man, they can really sing or that guy can really preach. That Guess what? That's not us. There are other churches in town that can do that and do that really well. But that's not us. It's not our purpose. That's, the, that's not the church's purpose. It's not to entertain people. The purpose of the church, it exists to put before the world the claims of Jesus and his gospel message. There it is. It's to put forward before the world the claims of Jesus. The church doesn't exist to serve as a social club. But rather, the church exists to extend the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the world, to the lonely, to the outcast, to the weak, to the frail of this world. Let me put it another way. The church is an outpost of heaven where the blessings of grace, blessings and grace of God's eternal consummated kingdom are lived out and shown forth in the here and now. Church is not a place that you go to, it's who you are, and as you live it out, as you live out of who you are in Christ, God's rule, his reign reaches to the ends of the earth. And then finally, very quickly, the hope of his eternal rule. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The universal rule of God is expressed by God's patience here. You can almost hear the pleading of God to the rulers, can't you? Like a a good father who expresses a warning when danger is near. He simply says, kings, be wise. (laughs) He says, rulers, be warned. It's a call for them to assess their situation. What do you think might be the wise person's response to the Lord's pleading? I think it's twofold. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I think the first uh, response is this. It's a spirit willing to receive God's revelation about the anointed and his kingdom. And if that's the response, then it begs the question this morning, what have you done with the revelation that you've been given about Christ? What have you done with it? In other words, what do you think of him? You know, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and I've used this quote a few times. I'm going to use it again this morning. It comes from mere Christianity. And just listen to it. I'm going to read it slowly enough. But this is about Jesus and what we think of him. And this is what he says in mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So you must have a spirit willing to receive God's revelation. And that he is God. And number two, you must have a joyous spirit of submission to the Lord. Look again at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What is, uh, the, uh, what is the, the response or the, the reason uh, for or the result of submitting to God joyfully? Look at that last verse. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Friends, apart from Christ, there is, there is hurt, there is pain... And there is condemnation. But what is there with Christ? Blessing. Simply God's favor bestowed upon you now and forever. Jesus is God's favor. Jesus is God's blessing. So be wise and be warned. Come to him today. Come and kiss the son. And let his favor rest on you. He is an unstoppable king and his kingdom would never fail. For your sake, come to him today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so very much that you are an unstoppable God and that Jesus is an unstoppable king and that he has come for us. And he will not fail until he brings us home with joy and with gladness. Father, thank you for these words that you've given to us today. Father, I pray that you would erase from our memories everything that wasn't from you and only bind those things that were your words meant and spoken for us. And I pray, oh Lord, that each and every one of us, no matter where we are, we would come to you today because we continue to need you. In Jesus' name I pray.